I love history. Enough, I suppose, at least to have gotten the PhD in the history of Christianity. Um, but that's a story for another day, maybe. I love history in part because I believe that how we recount our stories, both individually and collectively, determines how we understand ourselves and our place in the world. I think this is why the teaching of history has become such a political background, battleground in the United States. People are angry when textbooks record the ethical failings of the founding fathers, um, especially their sanctioning and profiting off of slavery. They don't want young people to learn about America's legacy of slavery or genocide or imperialism. Instead, I think they want schools to teach the history of the United States as one of constant progress under the guidance of great, often male leaders. One can see parallels, albeit more muted, in debates about how to write the history of Christianity. Christian history taught in religious studies departments and the church history taught in seminaries often have different emphases. The history taught in religious studies departments are more interested in exploring the social origins of Christianity and more willing to explore the ways that faith has been used to justify things like slavery or residential schools for native people. The history that is taught in seminaries touches on these issues, but tends to place more focus on the development of denominations and their leaders and their theology. Most pastors attend seminary and learn their history there. And so in a lot of ways, history as taught in seminaries is the one that comes to shape our churches and our institutions quite a bit more. And so I think we're tempted sometimes to think of our own denominational histories in self-congratulatory ways, um, to fixate on our leaders or theologians or the people that had the big ideas. And this proclivity shows up in what we call ourselves. We call ourselves Lutherans or Calvinists or Mennonites. And I think overall, we just do not attend enough to the history of movements. And this is a historical fact. Most of the most significant transformations in the life of the church were not the result of the genius of singular, talented, or prophetic individuals, but instead were the results of massive grassroots movements. Protestantism in general and Anabaptism in particular emerged not merely out of the forceful leadership of a few great men, but because of massive movements of people people who were navigating societal changes in new and creative ways. People who, in the wake of a hugely disruptive plague, had a measure of social mobility not seen in centuries. People who were increasingly literate, who in the midst of a communication revolution with the advent of the printing press, had unprecedented access to ideas. These people began to demand different things from their religious leaders. People became more confident in their capacity to reason, and so they demanded better sermons, slowly initiating a theological revolution that allowed new formulations of Christian doctrine to emerge. They longed for greater intimacy with God, and so agitated for greater access 
to both the bread and the wine during communion, initiating a liturgical revolution that had people reflecting a lot more on what is happening during communion. And these people demanded access to scripture in their own languages so that they could read it for themselves. And when they read scripture, they rediscovered that the commands of Jesus were not just commands for a religious elite, especially the commands about peace and the commands about simple living. Um, sure, there were leaders, people who were able to clearly articulate the discontents and longings of people, but it is also accurate to say that in many ways, these mass movements of people made the leaders, carried them forward, like a mighty wave brings a ship into shore. The same can be said about many contemporary movements, like the labor movement that grew up in our own backyard in places like Ford's River Rouge plant. And although we remember names like Eugene V. Debs or Samuel Gompis, Gomper, for the most part, the people who gave us the 40-hour work week or the weekend are lost to our remembrances. Similarly, the March on Washington didn't start when King began speaking of freedom, ringing from every hill and vale. It began much earlier as a dream of an African-American labor activist, A. Philip Randolph. Um, the idea of employing nonviolent direct action to challenge racial segregation didn't begin in Montgomery. It began much earlier with many black academics taking trips to India to learn from Gandhi. Rosa Parks was not just a woman who one day decided that she was too tired. She was somebody that had been doing the work of planning and strategizing in her local NAACP office for decades. And when the SNCC volunteers for Freedom Summer arrived in the Mississippi Delta, they were received by a network of people that had been resisting and working towards freedom since Reconstruction. What I am talking about here is a whole philosophy about how change happens that insists that power is from below. And one of the things that I love about Anabaptist forms of Christianity is that it is a branch of the Christian tradition that has preserved this insight about power in its structures, its organizations, and its institutions, and how we choose to live together as communities, and how we understand the roles of our leaders and our pastors. And this idea that power is from below has always been a counter-cultural idea. This is a story actually as old as the Hebrew Bible, where we learn that the people of Israel who had been formed into tribal confederacies that were quite egalitarian, demanded to have a king like every other nation. And God said, really? You want someone to rule over you and take your land and force your sons into armies and force labor and force your daughters to be concubines? And the people said, yep. Yeah. This longing for a ruler that would set everything right is part of our sacred story, one that we tell to each other again and again every Advent, where we remember that in Jesus's day, people were looking for a powerful leader who would challenge the Romans on the Romans' own terms. But instead, they got a wandering preacher who inspired a mass movement of poor people 
centered around table fellowship. In Acts, we see this movement growing with surprising people rising to prominence. And if you read early church history, you hear the Roman polemics against this. Why should we follow this Christian religion? We know that it attracts the worst kind of people, the slaves and women and people that don't have power. Now, this isn't the story of Acts I learned when I was a kid. I learned that Acts was a story about how Paul and Silas and Barnabas planted the church. And I guess this is part of why and part of the explanation for why so many evangelicals are gravitated to megachurches with charismatic church planting pastors. Like I said, this is all natural. Human beings long for strong leaders. We look out into a world that is vexed or out of whack, and we long for another George Washington or another Martin Luther King or another Menno Simons to rise up and fix things for us. And we forget the power that we have because we forget to tell the story of millions of people like us who wrote and thought and strategized and fed people and taught and marched and organized and hoped and worked and made great movements of people happen in the past. We hand over our power and then as the prophet Samuel predicted, we are surprised when too frequently our leaders abuse that power we've given them. Today we are living through a time when people are clamoring for a strong leader. And for at least half the electorate, Trump seems like the man. Trump seems to represent to people things they see as important, like power and wealth, someone who is decisive and speaks their mind. Of course, right now we are being warned again and again and again that this is a perfect recipe for fascism. This morning, I want to challenge us to ground our identity a bit more in our own prehistory as a movement. Um, to think of Shalom maybe as a movement, a small movement, but a movement nonetheless. Shalom Church began as a house church. In its early days, it was a community made up of young people and young family people who wanted to do church differently, who wanted to be able to have an active role in deciding what their churches looked like. And they wanted a church that was more inclusive and more open to new ideas and was committed to work for justice. And I'll just say from our little straw poll that we took a couple weeks ago, people still experience this community that way, as a community that's asked hard questions and is committed to community and is one where justice is important. One of the things that was very important for those early years of Shalom was to find ways of making decisions where every voice was heard. And that was really easy um, when everyone could fit together in a basement. Um, but although the church has grown, we still try to work hard to make this happen. Also in its early years, Shalom didn't have a pastor. And although Shalom eventually got pastors, it's important for me to affirm to you all that Shalom doesn't have a leader and it doesn't have two leaders. Instead, Shalom is a community of leaders. 
This doesn't mean that we don't need to have organization or strategy or leadership. In fact, as a movement of people, we likely need to work even harder to be clear about where we are at and where we are going. We probably need to be more strategic, in large part because communication and strategy makes it easier for a group of people to travel together. Right now, our CLC, I'm pointing to you, Priscilla, you represent all of CLC, but our Congregational Life Committee is working on some proposals for how to change some of our structures and decision-making policies. We are hoping that these changes will make us more intentional as a people and more resilient and, and a people more capable to act creatively and decisively together. So watch to hear more about that. As a movement people, we strive to remember that power comes from below. And so we do the hard work of listening to everyone's voices, not just the loud voices or the charismatic ones. As a movement people, we should anticipate that great ideas could come from anywhere, from our kids, from the person that is quiet and who does not want to say anything, and from the extroverts who's always verbally processing. And as a movement people, we shouldn't be surprised when people become curious and want to join us on our journey. So we need to work hard to strengthen our connections both internally, across ages and theological perspectives, but also to do the work of welcoming new people well. And we need to do the work of connecting externally with others that are like-minded in the community, which I hope we're at least talking about this fall with our worship series. Finally, if we are a movement people, then we are more like the geese than we are like a pack with alpha members. More like the geese who delight us with their aerial dance of swapping who is in charge. More like the geese who recognize that leading is a responsibility that requires extra effort and energy. And because of this, we honor those in leadership best by realizing that leadership is tiring and can exhaust even the strongest people in our midst. So as a movement people, we honor our leaders, not just by giving them thanks or special accolades, but by taking our turns leading too. This Sunday, we're going to do something very important towards that end. We're going to nominate people to join our discernment committee. Our discernment committee meets together and thoughtfully considers who might help lead our church over the next year. Who might be able to bring vision? Who might be able to be good at nurturing our children? Who might have the gifts to lead us in worship? 